Hi, everyone. I'm Andres, and welcome back to another episode of the Bat Box.、Um, how have you guys been?、Um, yeah, good. Good.、Um, our cats went to the vet for the first time this week. So that was a nice, lovely trip out to Stockport. <laughs>、um, a rare chance to leave the house, something. <laughs>、um, yeah, they, they came back very well. They're very happy. <laughs> For those for those of you who are tuning in、um, and haven't heard the, the kind of the previous episode, Chris has been talking about his ongoing saga as a as a cat as a cat dad, cat、um, new pet owner, new 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 cat parent.、Um, yes. So it's it's good it's good to learn that the kittens are doing well. Yeah. And how about you, Johnny? How's everything in London? Yeah,、um, I have, as you normally, incredibly little to report.、Um, we're all okay, but yeah, nothing, nothing much happening. Every day is very similar. I do work, I go for a walk.、Um, <laughs> <that's about it. laughs> so yeah, this this is something. This is something different to do in many ways.、Uh, is anything happening for, with you in Mexico City?、Um, only that yesterday, the earthquake alarms went off. There's an alert system throughout the city. That kind of give the city thirty around thirty seconds of heads up when there's a tremor in one of the fault lines in the in the in the Mexican coast, and I you know everyone just kind of left their apartments, they rush out onto the street,、um, and you kind of brace yourselves and you you don't know how bad it's going to be,、um, and it wasn't bad at all actually we didn't feel a thing,、um, although the earthquake was kind of. Strong in 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 its in its epicenter, and then there's always this kind of like strange sort of little、um, moment where there's relief in the air, and you see people that you never see on the streets all together、um, in a moment of commonality. It's it's a kind of interesting part of life, and so you say hi and you kind of giggle a little nervously, and now with COVID.、Um, That was an extra element added to that because people were kind of they weren't sure what the protocol was. Like, we're we're glad we're still alive because of the earthquake, but wait, let's let's keep trying to save our lives and not get too close. <laughs> so that happened last night. So it was it was all right. It was a, it was definitely. Well, I'm glad to I'm glad to hear you're okay.、Uh, um... Yeah, I was saying、yeah. to Andres just before we got on air as well that it's, it's very alien to me having lived in a country where. Where you never have to fear nature, really, in any way, to to, to think about this yeah, situation yeah. where you're constantly watching out for earthquakes. Great. Well, given that we're all good and we're ready to start this kind of fascinating、um, talk around the the Dutch elections, I would start by asking Chris, who's going to take the lead this episode, to tell us very kind of briefly, you know, when when the elections took place. And kind of, if you ha- if you could summarize in a couple of sentences, what you think the main takeaways of the elections are.、Um, so the election took place、um, from the fifteenth to the seventeenth of March, so over a few, a few days.、Um, and the main takeaways, I would say, are、uh, main takeaways. First of all, so for those who Aren't aware, the Dutch have what is generally what is generally described as the most proportional electoral system in the world.、Um, there are no constituencies whatsoever. Most countries that use proportional representation have some use of 
kind of multi-member constituencies. Um, and the electoral threshold to enter parliament is 0.66 reoccurring percent <laughs> because it's it's two thirds of a two thirds of a percentage point basically um which of course which is a, an incredibly low electoral barrier uh, uh, an incredibly low barrier to entering parliament um and so and so that has meant that Dutch politics in recent years has become increasingly fragmented to a ridiculous extent. Um, the current, the new Dutch parliament looks like we don't quite have full results yet, but we're close enough to full that, um, that it looks like they'll, um, things probably won't change here. Um, but um, it looks like right now that 17 parties are going to enter parliament. <laughs> um, um, and so what what we've seen within that, of course, that creates a very complicated set of pattern where it's often quite difficult to say for sure um, that there's one story that comes out of election. There are two main ones, I would broadly say. The first one is that Mark Rutte, who has been Prime Minister of the Netherlands since 2010, has, has, has won, seemingly won again. Um, it's almost impossible to imagine that a coalition would be formed without uh, Ruta and without the, um, his party, the VVD. Um, so, uh, so, so he will very likely be becoming the second longest serving head of government in the EU um, when Angela Merkel uh, steps down after Viktor Orban, of all people, um, which is, you know, telling. Um, and, and that's because Ruta has become seen as a kind of stabilising figure amongst all this fragmentation, amongst all these parties. Um, People, uh, people vote Pave Day because they see him as a kind of non-ideological safe pair of hands who will work with plenty with people from very who will work well with people from various sides of the political spectrum. Um, and the other thing that we've come out is something that has been a increasing trend since 2000 in particular has been the shifting of Dutch politics from being on lines running broadly left to right in a kind of classic sense towards lines that are more polarized on a kind of values access running from cosmopolitan, post-material, progressive, whatever you want to call it, um, values. Um, broadly very socially liberal values um, through to socially conservative of um, uh, authoritarian some might say although I don't particularly like calling it that way uh, word closed uh, values with kind of at the extreme end right-wing populist parties um, 
uh, and we've particularly seen in this election an, um, a, an incredibly good result for um, a social liberal party called D66, um, Democrat 66, who are pretty extreme on the cosmopolitan values access, but are pretty much slap bang in the center on, uh, on the economic access. Um, it's been a fairly bad election for the traditional parties of the left. Um, the right-wing populism has done uh, done pretty well again, albeit with not huge amounts of change in the overall numbers. Um, so that seems to kind of confirm this pattern that we've been seeing in the Netherlands for quite some time now. I mean, this is a fascinating election, and I think that you've already set the scene for kind of understanding it as both the uh, series of like particular events to recent Dutch developments, and in combination with the, partic the particularities of the Dutch electoral system and how that influences mm. the party system. So I would just ask you about the threshold. The threshold is really, actually, if you kind of let's back up more than just the threshold. Could you tell us a little bit about the PR system, the number of seats in parliament, and then the threshold and how that threshold compares to other countries um, briefly? Okay. Um, so the, so basically, um, basically the threshold, the whole electoral system is designed to produce a pretty pure proportional representation uh, outcome. Um, so there are 150 seats in Parliament, um, which uh, is, for a country the size of the Netherlands, actually fairly low, albeit the Netherlands is pretty decentralised. Um, um, and the reason the threshold is 0.67% is because the PR system is based first and foremost on, on the idea of the, the, air of the hair quota, um, which I'm not going to go into too, detail, too much details on this, but basically the hair quota is, um, is you take the number of seats um, in a constituency, or in this case in Parliament, and you divide the number of votes by the number of seats, and you get the hair quota, <laughs> um, which happens to, which of course happens to be two thirds of a percentage point. If you have, if you have um, 150 seats, so basically the threshold is put at that price because it's it's saying that a party has to earn one seat on its own. Before it can, <laughs> before it can get um, a place in parliament, and that is incredibly low by international standards. Um, so, the 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 only other country that has had similarly low thresholds in the past is Israel, um, which at one point was as as far low as one um, percent, um, but has now gone up to. 3.25 percent and it's a we'll have we'll have a discussion about israel soon because they're also in the midst of an election campaign and it's probably the most comparable electoral system because it's simply has no um 
no um, no for, um, no constituencies. The uh, only other one I can think of, um, although it is slightly different in that they they don't have they have leveling seats, but they don't have a single nationwide constituency, would be Denmark because of two percent, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So the or slightly higher. Yeah, yeah. And the D Danish system is very proportional, but they do have they do have constituencies. But as you say, the leveling seats do complicate things a bit. Um, uh, but most countries put their threshold and their electoral thresholds at four or five percent at the national level. That's kind of that's probably that's a kind of standard level for. Um, for PR systems. Um, and then, of course, famously, Turkey goes as high as 10, as we've discussed in the past on this very here podcast when we um, did our Turkish electoral history podcast, which um, has some really bizarre uh, effects on the other end of things. Has some anti-democratic um, effects as well, I think we should probably point out. Some, I think, yes, I think within those bizarre effects, there are certainly some very anti-democratic effects, um, particularly if you're um, from certain minorities. <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, within that as well, it's broadly, it's briefly worth mentioning that it's not a closed list system. It's a semi-open list system. Where, which means that people can vote for candidates on the lists, uh, but you have to. But people, people almost always vote for the party leader um, because that's the most well-known figure of the party, um, and people. And you, you don't just because it's semi-open lists. You have to get above a certain threshold, which, if I recall correctly, is a quarter. Of a hair quota um, to get elected, and very few people get that. And most of those who do get elected anyway, because they're normally somewhere near the top of the list. So it's very rare to see someone actually elected who wouldn't have been because of um, the semi-open aspect of the system. So, um, but so yeah, parties are very parties in the Netherlands are very very disciplined typically. Um, particularly the larger parties that have been around for a while, people, um, the MPs typically um, exhibit almost total party discipline. And if you ever see an MP in the Netherlands amongst the big parties who isn't exhibiting almost total party discipline, it's usually a good sign that they're about to split um, as, for example, happened with Gert Wilders, who um, who started his life as a favorite day politician, is now the kind of the the major right wing populist leader in the Netherlands. That's a that's a really fascinating part of the Dutch electoral system, and um, mm -hmm. so it creates fragmentation. And what from what I read for, for about this election, there was a record breaking thirty seven parties up for election and mm. 17 made it to parliament so 37 parties is it's a it's a it's it's kind of even the kind of an onus on voters to kind of like follow all of the parties actually it, that, that i'm sure that that has some effect another effect that um highly kind of proportional systems have seems to be turnout could you talk to us a little bit about kind yeah. of how turnout was Despite despite the COVID restrictions, which were yeah yeah so turnout um, I'm sure I should 
just quickly double check because I haven't. I saw some kind of warring figures, um, I, but I've got the election results up just in front of me. So I'll just take a second to change it, check that it hasn't changed. Because I think there. Okay. So turnout looks to be above, it looks to be about 82%. Um, and in fact, a little bit up from last time. Um, and that's not an unusual figure for the Netherlands. It's not actually historically particularly high i mean even in uh, as recently as the 80s and 90s they were getting above 85 percent um but it's a it's a reminder that that it's something that we see a lot in highly proportional electoral systems is they do tend to have higher turnouts because of course people have a sense that they have a more sizable amount of choice um, and that their vote has more impact. Um, and it's also, it's also the case, it's, it's also particularly interesting in this case because only one of the 17 parties did any kind of ground, ground campaigning because of, um, because of COVID restrictions. The Forum for Democracy, which is one of the right-wing populist parties, um, it, it is anti-COVID restrictions, so ran something that it described as a freedom caravan around the country. <laughs> um, you know, very clearly, the, the Forum for Democracy, which usually abbreviated to FED because everything in the Netherlands has an acronym, is um is usually is um has a kind of long history of well has since its beginnings been a party that has thrived on controversy so it's not surprising that they would do that <laughs> and do you like this 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 is also an election with a lot of um different kind of threads to it and debates mm. Um, you've already kind of mentioned some of the major cleavages between parties, but could you also tell us a little bit about like kind of the broad setting of the scene prior to the election? Um, what were in what what, what was what, what what issues were on Dutch voters' minds, and what was being played out? Mm. So, uh, so there's always some kind of lurking background issues in as in any country. Um, but the broad ones that particularly came to the fore with this one was first of all coronavirus, um, which where the Dutch government has had a mixed record. It's probably fair to say. Um, I actually, I, was, I actually there's and some of that's kind of, and. and some of that's fully understandable. Some of it, a lot of it's basically comparable to their neighbours, um, and that therefore the government has probably, in some ways, been aided by the fact that the Dutch border Belgium, and they're one of the few countries that pay any attention to Belgium <laughs> because of the fact that they kind of share a language. Flemish is a dialect and it can be a little bit difficult for the Dutch to understand at times, but it's broadly close enough that they can get the gist of what's happening. Um, the, um, 
uh, and Belgium has had a particularly bad record on coronavirus, but the government has not been without its problems. So um, there's a, they put a curfew into place to try and um, to try and keep the situation more under control, um, which has been very controversial and resulted in some riots in January. Um, which were, of course, supported particularly by the um, Forum for Democracy um, and um, pointed to by a lot of people as a kind of demonstration of the, the problems of Dutch coronavirus policy. Um, and, and at times the government has made some claims which it's had to go back on, like the government was claiming for a very long time that um, that children just couldn't catch coronavirus, <laughs> um, which has been a claim that some scientists ha ha were making, but um, I think it's probably, um, obviously I'm not a scientist, so it's a big great news on, on this, but I uh, my understanding is it's very much a minority view. And uh, of course has since, since been shown to be untrue. Um, and, uh, um, so that that was one issue and uh, slightly amusing element of that actually as well is that um a couple of days ago i remembered a video from almost exactly a year ago it's about a year and two weeks ago um where ruta did one of his very early press conferences on the coronavirus and he, it was a press com press conference where one of the major themes was we must all stop shaking hands with each other and at the end of it he shook hands with the health official that he was <laughs> that, <laughs> that he was um that he was doing the press conference with immediately realized his mistake and said in dutch oh we can't do that anymore and started elbow bumping him <laughs> and then wandered off but um, one of the things with Ruta is he's very likable, so he's just able to laugh it off. Um, but yeah, um, so yeah, there's been problems, but they haven't really looked particularly terrible compared to, to you know, when they, you consider that they neighbour Belgium and the UK is across the sea and Germany's also had some problems, albeit it's slightly more complicated by the fact that it's a federal system. Um, so that was kind of one of the themes. The second theme that came about was um, a childcare benefit scandal. So the Dutch have a scheme where benefits are available to dual learner families that um, have to send their kids to childcare. Um, and basically, it's a very complex system, and uh, it seems that multiple multiple very very heading governments, um, including a previous grand coalition with the Labour Party, um, seem to have been chasing down um, Dutch families particularly of migrant origins, um, um, claiming that they had been fraudulently overclaiming benefits and demanding the money back. Um, and a lot of these people are very poor. And of course, it, 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 um, it also corresponds to 
um, Dutch politics in both the fact that the VVD has been in government as a centre-right party has been pushing pretty tough austerity and and in the fact that it's also been broadly pushing anti-immigration rhetoric and policies. So it, it caused huge amounts of... Um, huge amount of irritation at that point. It actually collapsed the government at the time. The other parties, apart from the VVD, all pulled out of the government a couple of months before the election, but the election was so close anyway, so it didn't generate an early election. Um, it's actually kind of become something of a tradition in the Netherlands that you find a reason to kind of collapse the government a little bit before the elections to kind of give you a little bit more room to to campaign um but it's fair to say that i think in this case it was fully justified um and i would say that this probably actually had the most impact on 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 the labor party um the uh, which is often known as the um P pvda um be because of course no one's really hugely shocked when the VVD does <laughs> does things that are tight with money and um, anti-migrant. It's much more shocking when it's the Labour Party, and the Labour Party has has been in tough straits for most of the last two decades. Um, but they, but uh, uh, but they had risen risen a fair amount since the previous election and it it knocked them down labor party then took too long to get rid of its leader um asher who um was a prominent minister in that in the vvd labor government and then put into place a, a labor leader that um who ran i think it's fair to say a pretty bad campaign um, and that, uh, and that's one reason why the Labour Party, having got its last result at the last ele last election, hasn't gained any seats. Albeit, they'll broadly be happy that they haven't lost any too, given the way things have could have gone. Um, and then the. Let me see, there was a third thing I was going to talk about. Ah, yes. And then towards the end of the campaign, um, issues around the EU started to prop up quite a lot. And the Dutch have broadly been heading towards a kind of soft Eurosceptic place uh, over the last two decades, um, particularly around particularly around two events. First of all, in 2006, the Dutch... Um, to the surprise of a lot of people, rejected the European Constitution um, as it then was a kind of new treaty to um, remake the EU um, by a very sizable number, basically on the basis that the Dutch at the time were the country that was giving the largest amount of money to the EU um, per head, and that was causing a lot of irritation. Um, and then that's been compounded by the Eurozone crisis, where the Dutch have um, been a consistent predator um, and um, 
and the Dutch have become what is known as one of the what are known as the four frugals countries who basically want the EU to spend as little and want the EU to uh, um, because they associate EU spending with taking from them specifically um, and th this kind of group became a key component actually around coronavirus as well because um, the EU um, did uh, did a great big Eurobond stimulus program to the poorest states um, which uh, was kind of huge EU policy discussion um, and put a lot of countries in loggerheads against each other, including including the Dutch. Um, and it, so, even even more pro-European country parties and D D sixty six are once again traditionally the most pro-European party in the Netherlands. Have generally been keeping their heads down about EU issues for a while, um, and then this was challenged by the emergence of Volt which is a pan-European party um, who already have an MEP in Germany. Um, and their Dutch wing proved to be surprisingly good campaigners. Um, and that started to draw, uh, create discussion around, actually, maybe the EU doesn't have to be this kind of austere um, thing. Maybe we can start making the entire, all of Europe better by you know, um, doing lots of fun, uh, lots of federalist stuff like um, creating kind of more joint budget, supporting each other more, and that will help everyone. And um, that that campaign caused Volt to first of all rise in the polls, and then it caused D66 to accentuate its pro-European character, um, which is certainly one of the things that drove D66 incredibly good result. Yeah, I think we should talk about the the results um in a minute because there's a few a few a few parties in particular which I'd like to kind of highlight as having particularly notable results. Mm. Um first I did want to ask a little bit about the the Veve day because this is um, probably like unquestionably now the um I don't really want to use the word dominate dominant party because it received twenty two percent of the vote. Yeah. About where this party kind of exists in, or if it does exist in our traditional conceptions of like party mm. families, because it's yeah, it was a kind of a liberal party, but some of its stances on, I think, as you've already highlighted, on some issues, wouldn't yeah. quite fit yeah. with what we sort of conceive as a liberal um, party. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's described as liberal in the Netherlands, but liberal has a very different meaning in the Netherlands to the one it has, particularly in the UK, in, in the UK and the US. Um, and it's, it's one that would be more, be more, um, be more well known on the continent, but um, it tends to be more alien to Anglo countries. So basically, uh, basically, the what the VVD stands for it's a it's a centre right party, um, and what they mean by liberal is essentially the the secular right, because traditionally the Netherlands has been a country where um, where where there were intense religious divides 
And that led to Christian Democrats being dominant parties. Um, Christian, Christian Democratic parties governed the Netherlands broadly from uh, um, universal suffrage in 1918 through to, um, through to 1994, um, when, um, when a a left-right coalition was formed explicitly to try and kick the Christian Democrats out of power because people thought they'd been in, in office too long. <laughs> um, so, um, and the Veve Day has, so obviously secularization challenged a lot of those um, cleavages um, and and by the 19, by the 1980s in particular, the Christian Democratic Party, which um, the Christian Democratic Appeal was there uh, known, um, uh, it had kind of become more a party that was a guarantor of stability, kind of the party of the moderate centre-right. Um, and that's broadly the position that the Veve Day has slipped into, um, after the Christian Democrats became increasingly um, seen as uh, seen uh, as people moved increasingly away from the Christian Democrats, um, so the very days politics are broadly in the kind of mould that I would I, I often think of Rutter's very day in particular as being in a kind of mould that in the UK we would associate with David Cameron. Um, he, he's, um, he gives a, off a, a very good appearance of being kind of fairly non-ideological. He's um, seen as a pragmatist. He's seen as someone who works well with others. Um, and he's seen as a kind of guarantor of stability in a, a, very, um, in a very divided country. But his party is a fair bit to his right, um, and its politics are generally um, so. First of all, economically, it's they're they're generally the most free market party in the country, um, and then it's also a party that tends to be broadly anti-immigration, tough on crime. Um, Obviously, one of the things that the Netherlands is most famous for um, outside, um, around the world is its very liberal politics on things like drugs and uh, euthanasia and, um, and LBG rights. The Vey Day usually sits somewhere in the middle on those particular issues because, of course, it's not as extreme as the Christian parties, but it, it's not generally as radical as the left-wing parties or um, or D66 are. Um, so broadly, that's the kind of space that they've wound up in, um, and 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 kind of like Angela Merkel's CDU, they've become kind of seen as the kind of guarantor of stability within the Netherlands. Um, so very definitely liberal, uh, liberal economic party, but on mm. the other side of the spectrum is a little bit more kind of mixed. 
well. yeah and you can kind of you can kind of see that in terms of so the usually the dutch will nowadays refer to the Vebe day as a conservative liberal party um uh, which um kind of gets at it a little bit and sometimes the party is spoken about as having um liberal and conservative factions as well which with um Ruta generally seen as hailing more from the liberal faction than the conservative one and and of course we have a which we've already mentioned a few times the another liberal party um mm. which is the the d66 um yeah. which is obviously it is a a very interesting party which is obviously very much liberal in the social um sense yeah um and yeah. although i suspect well i mean probably more no more than me i get the impression is perhaps slightly to the left of the VVD on the economics while still being yes. pretty centrist kind of thing um, otherwise um so yeah this this i think would fit more into a kind of anglo-american conception of a yeah and and i think actually particularly for those those listeners who are f- from the uk I think D sixty six is actually probably one of the liberal parties in Europe that most closely resembles the Liberal Democrats in terms of and, and particularly the kind of Nick Clegg era Lib Dems in terms of being a party that, that broadly places itself in the centre on economic issues, but has a very socially liberal position on um, on social and cosmopolitan issues for, and it being incredibly pro-European. It's a party that is extremely... Uh, um, and it's a party that has, particularly as right-wing populism has, a, has arisen more in the Netherlands, has positioned itself as, as a party that is increasingly pro-immigration, pro-multiculturalism, has, um, and has explicitly set itself up as the nemesis of um, right-wing populism, uh, of Gert Wilders, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and, and of course, the D66, um, and then for people who are wondering about the name, this party was founded in 1966, so it's yes. still continues with the 66 in its, in its it's, logo. Yes, um, it's become a brand of sorts. Um, yeah. A very effective one. Um, yeah. Yeah, so Which, yeah. It, and it's it's done very well in this election. I mean, it's a, um, added an extra four seats to its total. It's now the second largest party as well. Yeah. Um, but this yeah. this was um, is unexpected. I think on a couple of occasions, a couple of reasons. First, because when D sixty six has been in government before, it's tended to lose quite a lot coming out of it. Yeah. Um, and has been in the cabinet for the last four years. But also because I don't think this was really um, predicted by the the polls before either. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not quite performed as well as the initial exit polls did. Uh, it suggested it would do, but it's still won its second largest ever seat hall, um, which for a party that has existed since 1966 is 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 good going. Um, it's. Uh, it, yeah, uh, and I think I think the reason why it's probably overperformed polls is probably a fairly simple one, which is that um, the pro-European surge, which I spoke about a little bit earlier, 
came about pretty late in the campaign and that meant that it looked like D66 was still surging in the final polls. Um, so it's it's very likely that they the polls were correct. It's just that polls, of course, are, as we often, as pollsters are often very fond of saying, they're snapshots, not predictions. The, the, you, the, a poll is a poll is taken um, at a specific moment in time, and it can only tell you what opinion is at that moment in time. It can't tell you what opinion is next week. So it's very likely that D sixty six would just sur- it would just carried on surging into polling day, um, and that that's happened a few times in the Netherlands now. Um, so that, that's not necessarily that's not unusual in and of itself, um, and and in a in a country that is so volatile um, and with so many parties, it makes sense that a lot of people wouldn't really decide until the very last minute. Um, so, yeah, on that score, yeah. Um, and the part, uh, and the other part of what the party was doing well was cer- certainly its new, le- new leader, um, Sigrid Karg, who um, only became leader last year. Um, she's um, incredibly charismatic um, politician who uh, who actually comes to Dutch politics from from um, from the international sphere. She worked for the UN for many years. Um, she was a candidate to lead the UN development um, program. Um, she worked in Jerusalem for many years. Her her husband. At, at, within the context of, of um, Dutch minority politics, where about five percent of the country is Muslim, her husband is actually, is actually a Palestinian, and she speaks Arabic with her children. So uh, she's um, incredibly accomplished. She proved herself to be a very effective campaigner, and she deliberately framed herself as a potential first woman prime minister of the Netherlands, um, which um, the Netherlands is a country that tends to elect a fairly sizable number of women. I think the parliament, the new parliament is about 38% women, Um, but they've never had a a woman prime minister and women tend to be underrepresented at at the tops of parties. D66 actually has an unusually female leadership um, so um, that gave her a, 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 another in as well. Um, and the party's campaign was very much around her. And while they didn't quite pretend like they hadn't been in government over the last four years, which they very much have, um, they, uh, they were much more focused on her than on their own achievements in office. Um, which uh, it's been a fairly difficult government for them as well, because. Um, they were governing with both the Veve Day, but also with two Christian parties, um, which obviously uh, limited them in terms of what they could achieve um, in terms of the values issues, which typically motivate their voters. Okay, and there's um, there's another party I want to want to ask about um, that I found, which I've not seen a huge amount of reading the coverage. Um, obviously, I don't read the. I don't read. I don't speak Dutch, so I haven't been reading the the Dutch coverage with with much, uh, very much. 
But the coverage hasn't really talked about it too much. But which I want, which I thought was a particularly interesting result, was the um, was this was Green left, um, which mm. lost six seats in this election, which was I seem to remember of the 2017 election was one of the uh, kind of big winners. Did very much better than it had ever done before, and I get the impression was seen as the kind of first. Um, the first result of this sort of green wave that Europe has been experiencing over the past few years, um, which that and then has now, although it wasn't in government, has still lost, ended up losing um, six seats and falling back yeah. to about 5% of the vote. I was wondering if you knew anything about what had kind of happened there. with this Yeah, election. I mean, I don't know specifically a huge amount about green left this time out, to be honest. I mean, I think, first of all, it's worth framing it within the context of this is so the green green left, the Socialist Party, and Labour are typically seen as the kind of free core left parties. Um, and when you top them up together, they've all had basically their basically the worst ever result for what is now often called the classic left. Um, and in fact, they together they have fewer seats than uh, right wing populist parties do. So um, in in those terms, it's been a particularly bad election for them. Um, so there's probably a a mix of things going on uh, going on for those parties. First of all, um, first of all, the left wing parties have been uh, increasingly. Um, have appeared increasingly irrelevant in parts because of the fact that they keep losing elections. Um, the Dutch left have never been particularly strong. People often think of the Netherlands as some immense liberal bastion, but that's more to do with the particular flavour of Dutch values politics in terms of parties like D66, rather than being... Um, particularly left-wing, and in fact, the Dutch have never elected a majority left-wing government. Um, uh, uh, oh, sorry, I should say, uh, the Dutch have never elected a majority left-wing parliament. Um, but the left-wing parties have looked particularly irrelevant in recent years, despite the fact that the Dutch are actually moving leftwards on social economic issues, according to public opinion. Um, another element is certainly D66's rise. So the Dutch left-wing electorate is very volatile and it has a tendency to move around um, those three parties and D66 quite a lot. So it's probably, and the green left has a particular crossover with D66. When green left is in its more right-wing right, right phases, it typically often actually looks quite a lot like a more left-wing D66. Um, and so it's probably just the case as well that they've just, that this D66 rise has to some extent just cannibalized the classic left parties. It's also just the case that like all the classic left parties are now kind of under attack from a lot of different directions. And I think it's probably less about the green left in some ways, albeit, I believe the general view is that they ran a pretty pretty uninspiring campaign because, for example, the socialists also lost five seats um, who are kind of a more left populist party. 
um, with a kind of interestingly working class profile who typically don't stand out so much on values issues, but just the socialists are um, the most left wing party on social economic issues. Um, so, yeah, in some ways, it, I don't think it's even so much about the green left so much as about kind of wider phenomenon with the Dutch left in total, which green left are very much a part of their green, as the name suggests, they're a party that um, has a much more clearly left of centre profile than a lot of other green parties. And one element as well is certainly the fact that they even they don't have a very good monopoly on the um, environmental issue even. D66 has a very strong profile on that issue. Um, and, and like a lot of social liberal parties in some ways resembles a kind of very moderate green party. <laughs> Yeah, and we should also mention that, that um, a, a great fact about Dutch politics is that there is a animal rights party which currently has six seats. So yes, who also who also put into that demographic as well. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I was I was find uh, Green Left to be really interesting. It is in in many ways not a I don't know not a proper Green Party in that the mm. way it was formed was not it was not formed as a Green Party. It was formed as a merger of various or the small left-wing parties yes the actual dutch green party refused to join this um alliance as well yeah and still exists getting kind of derisory yeah. shares of the vote um but yeah yeah just, well, be a, a green party i'll be one of the one of the four parties that joined but could had arguably become a green party <laughs> but yeah it kind of comes into this thing of it's almost a discussion of what green parties are are green parties first and foremost parties focused on the environment or are they parties who represent a kind of uh, who represent a, a, a form of the kind of politics of values to represent a kind of set of post-material values of which environmentalism is a very prominent part um, and you can see that in, for example, with the German Green Party, who have also kind of staked out a position as being very pro-multiculturalism, very pro-immigration, being being a party that has very social liberal views on things like LGBT issues and feminism and all that lovely stuff. And and Green Left, Green Left in some ways is is in that position, but that also means that they have a lot of crossover with D66, although almost everyone in the Netherlands has some degree of crossover with D66, because D66, one of the reasons why D66 is so volatile is that D66 is essentially everyone's second choice party. Um, it's the party that you go to when your um, first choice party has annoyed you, or for when they seem to be on the surge. Um, yeah. So they've got a big crossover with the very, very day electorate. They've got a big crossover with um, the classic left parties, and they've got a big crossover with um, with um, with um, the CDA as well. With people who basically support just moderate economic policies. Um, so yeah, and in fact, 
I've, I've seen some post-election poll analysis that says that the third largest group of voters that D66 got came from Green Left. Um, the the first largest coming from the Veve Day, albeit the Veve Day was probably cannibalizing every other other right wing parties because they still managed to increase their vote. And the second largest group of voters that they got were actually um, voters who didn't vote at the last election, so probably mostly new voters. Um, which, yeah, telling itself. Yeah, and um, well, yeah, I, I just wanted to finish it up partly as well because I just I find Green parties as a party family incredibly fascinating. Green, yeah, Green Left are a particularly interesting instance as well because of the fact that they're a merger party and they've mm. t- taken off a lot, lot of interesting people, and they are quite. But yeah, they're in a difficult position because the Netherlands, um, uh, Netherlands, so very rarely elects centre-left governments. Um, and when they do, the greens, green left is, is often not necessary to make up the numbers or, or, or the, um, those governments also require um, that all, they're not a popular choice for centre-right parties that also needed to make up those governments because, um, because as I say, the, the, the Dutch have never elected a majority green parliament and never, never elected a majority left-wing parliament. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, albeit, for example, it is telling that their former leader, Femke Halsema, who I, I, actually I've been a long-time fan of, is currently mayor of Amsterdam. So they do have they do have um, they do have positions of power, but the national level is a mm-hmm. is a frustrating one for them. The big, yeah. but the the big cities have a lot of possibilities for them, particularly uh, particularly Amsterdam, which. Um, even compared to other European capitals, has a particularly um, progressive left feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I want to what, what I want to get on to is um, as well as uh, what the next the shape of the next government should be, because we've obviously for rather unusually the parties which made up the last government still have a majority in parliament. Mm. Um, quickly, first though, we we shared as much as. I don't really want to talk about them. Talk about the the uh, far right uh, populist right. Yeah, there was there's which of which there is now three in Parliament. Um, yes, what's going on there, which is a splintering of them. So, um, so for many years, um, the Dutch far right has been dominated by one man, Gert Wilders, and his Freedom Party, the PVV. Um, which is an incredibly fascinating party in the fact that it basically isn't a party. Um, the Pepe the, the Pepe has um, has two members officially because under Dutch law, to be a political party, you have to have at least two members. And the first member is Gert Wilders, and the second member is the Gert Wilders Foundation, which is headed by Gert Wilders. So it's very much a personalist beast. And it, it's, Wilders, there almost isn't very much to say about Wilders this time, which is kind of weird given that he's come third um, once again, um, because Wilders, Wilders is Wilders. Wilders just, he's intensely Islamophobic. He, um, he 
uh, makes a, a a very large amount of noise. But broadly, he doesn't change. He doesn't do anything, and he's quite happy just having a sizable party group that sits outside government, um, which um, has been dragging government to the right. Um, and 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 Wilders came under a bit of challenge um, just before the last election with the arrival of the Forum for Democracy, which I mentioned a little bit before. Um, and the FVD uh, basically originated in, to some extent, in the Dutch blogosphere, um, in, in around kind of blogs that, around kind of right-wing, alt-righty blogs, and has and won two seats um, at the last Dutch election, and then exploded into prominence um, because of their leader, um, Thierry Baudet. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, so apologies. <laughs> um, but um, he's a fiery, very charismatic leader. Um, he's um, quite handsome. He dresses well. He's a controversialist. He's... Um, there's a famous Instagram photo of him in um, bathing by a pool in his underwear. Um, he um, and he has received huge amounts of media attention over the last parliamentary term. Um, some critics of Dutch media would say far exceeding what he deserves given his popularity. Um, but he. Um, but Dutch media has clearly decided that he makes excellent television and excellent headlines. Um, and his party um, broadly won the last provincial elections, albeit they were divided even by Dutch standards. <laughs> um, I think he, they only won about 14% of the vote nationwide, but that was enough to be the largest party in the country. <laughs> um, which, yeah, is telling. Um, um, and because of that, um, because of that, they won the largest group in the Dutch Senate because the Dutch Senate is elected by provincial politicians. Um, so uh, he, he has been, uh, so he and the FED have become um, increasingly prominent and were polling in first place for quite a long period. Um, this all, um, and broadly the difference with builders is that they are kind of more modern, more online. Um, they have a more clearly traditional um, set of stances on the economy for a right-wing party. They are, uh, they're pretty economically libertarian. They use a lot of kind of libertarian language. I spoke a little bit about their um, freedom caravan with regards to um, coronavirus, where they've been quite outspoken. Um, and then last year, it all fell apart um, because, uh, well, it all fell apart seemingly pretty quickly because um, a series of WhatsApp messages in internal party groups were leaked to the press, revealing um, homophobia, anti-Semitism, and glorification of Anders Breitvik, amongst other delightful far-right terrorists. Uh, this led to a lot of internal party warring. Um, the, uh, um, there was a period where, um, where Bedell announced 
that he was no longer going to be the FVD leader. Um, then a little period after that, he announced he was going to be the leader again. <laughs> um, and this kind of led to a kind of sense of instability. And, and in a sense, it's a kind of proof of why it is that Vilders continually remains the unchallenged king of the of Dutch right-wing populism because people have been trying to beat him out of that space almost, I mean, from the day that he arrived on the scene. Um, so basically, basically after 2001, it became very clear that there was a very sizable Dutch right-wing space in, in, in right-wing populist space available because of the rise of um, Pim Fortein and then his, his um, murder, which um, is a very complex series of events, but which, um, which, um, if you're interested, there's substantial amounts um, have been written about in in the academic and and popular press spheres. Um, but because of the vacant, because Fortain was no longer around, there was a clear right wing populist uh, space, and Builders basically beat off several other challengers to take that position. And has then continued to beat off challenges since. And I think the mistake that everyone else keeps making is that they keep insisting on trying to have party memberships. And Vilders has kind of worked out that if you completely control the party, party, and can and can as he does, he he hand chooses candidates. He only runs a very small number of lists in local elections. He typically only runs in two cities. Um, and he, uh, um, so that he can vet every single candidate personally. Um, if you maintain complete control freakery over a right-wing populist party, it's harder for it to collapse through um, the classic mix of, um, of the classic mix of infighting and just it being revealed that some members of your party have clearly crossed normative barriers that that um, perhaps they shouldn't. Um, and the FED infighting a split also led to the arrival of a new um, right-wing populist party called JA21, um, which is co-led by two politicians who've actually been around the right-wing populist sphere for a while, um, who, who um, were actually, one of them was an MP for Pim Fortain. Um, but who are basically trying to present a kind of more moderate version of being right wing of right wing populism? They actually took the majority of the FVD's Senate group with them, so they have a pretty big Senate group, and and they've won um, they've won uh, they've won fewer seats than the FVD. The FVD actually still managed to go up to eight seats, albeit that at one point they were looking at twenty five. Um, as many as 25. Um, uh, uh, but, and I think, what are JA21 won? I think JA21 won four seats somewhere right there? Come on, three there. seats. Three seats. Three seats. So JA21 won three seats. Um, and they're trying to present themselves, I think, basically uh, in a position that is clearly right of the very, very day but available as a potential coalition partner in the future. Um, we'll see how 
those two parties um those two parties carry on i um i i i, I, I but yeah it's it's clear that dutch right wing populism is to some extent splintering between different types and different strategies um but um is itself still very strong it may well be in the end that Wilders just beats them all again <laughs> and, and, and and all those seats end up being sucked back into his uh into his uh, vehicle but um it, it, we'll see because Wilders Wilders can't well for one thing he can't live forever so at some point he is going to have to stop being a politician. Um, and and second of all, there's a I think there's a sense that his act is getting a little stale, um, albeit there's clearly a very substantial number of votes still left for it. So yeah, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> so yeah, I mean then lastly the. Um... Obviously, as we've said, there's the 17 parties in, in Parliament now. Mm. Um, so it normally we'd be talking about, and Dutch government formation normally does take quite a long time, um, and it certainly did last time. Um, but we do have now a situation where it would be possible just to re, just to reproduce the last government. Mm. Um, do you think that this is likely to happen, or is there a sense that I, I the, think it will swap out some of the parties? I, I think it's one of the I think it's one of the I think it's probably one of the likeliest outcomes, um, to be honest, because it's one of the ones that you can say with certainty everyone would work. Um, and one thing that's important here as well is actually the Senate. Um, the Senate can't block legislation, but it can delay legislation. Um, uh, uh, and uh, which has caused a lot of headaches for recent Dutch governments. So historically, it was almost the case that regardless what you did, it was almost guaranteed that there would be a majority in the Senate. Um, and but that's just very quickly ceased being true. Um, this particular Senate has a particularly large right-wing populist contingent, which also complicates matters um and it isn't up and it won't be up for election again until 2023 as well so it's going to be the senate for the majority of the life of this parliament um so um the current government has 32 seats which is only four short of a majority so that's helpful too the biggest problem is um in some ways d66's rise because D66 has always been pretty exposed in the government formation they have because none of its, because none of its natural allies to its left are, are there with it, which means that for a volatile party, um, it's not very well protected. Um, and, and that's, and, but, and in this particular case, D66 has more influence over the coalition formation process as well, because it's 
become essential to form a co- much more essential to forming a coalition and because it's the second largest party in parliament and the the talk is that um both Feve Day and D66 are being scouted by um the informators um Dutch coalition formation is a is a strangely formalized dance in which there are um in which there are official scouts for coalition formation and then an informator is appointed who will who will um, by parliament who will negotiate uh, who will be the head of negotiations essentially and chair things he's usually a a, a kind of elder statesman from one of the senior part of parties that are likely to be involved in the coalition. So D66's opinion will weigh a lot here. So I suspect we might get the kind of peculiar Dutch dance where um, we may have several, a couple of months of essentially trying to form coalitions, which people know won't work to demonstrate that you're trying to form a coalition with your natural allies. So I wouldn't be surprised to see um, both Dutch Labour and Green Left appear at the, at the negotiation table at some point. Um, and maybe, particularly with Labour, they might be able to um, form a government. But that would mean pulling the coalition further left than Baby Day and the CDA would necessarily be comfortable with um and for the left-wing parties as well it's not necessarily in their interest to expose themselves particularly after they've had a pretty bad election um and christian union can be a fairly reliable christian union which is the fourth party in the outgoing government um can be a pretty reliable coalition partner because it has a very intense electorate who don't really move um so as well as favorite day and and, um, and so Christian Union is a for those who aren't aware is a a Christian Orthodox party which has a mix of unusual positions um, of kind of very socially conservative on issues of personal morality like euthanasia and abortion and so on and um, so on but is um, has positions on things like the environment and economics and even to some extent um, asylum and immigration which you would more classically expect from the centre-left party um, it's a kind of very unique Dutch party focused on the um on the dutch bible belt the bijel bodo um, which um um and comes out of um particular calvinist traditions mm-hmm. um but yeah so they so, so yeah they don't really have any reason to fear going into government mm-hmm. um and and say they are kind of relatively uh, the cda will the cda for one of the reasons why cda was dominate dominant for so long is cda just became a party that would go into coalition with literally anyone <laughs> it didn't matter who they were cda would go into a coalition with them um and so that just allowed them to be a hinge party in the party system 
Um, so yeah, they've got no real reason to change that behavior. Um, and, and in any case, they're basically essential for a government anyway. Okay, well, I'm sure we'll keep track of this um, in the yeah. months. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we'll be many months of coalition negotiations to essentially get something that doesn't look extremely different to what we have now, <laughs> um, albeit with with probably a a a lurch left on both economic, but especially values issues and. Um, and and Europe as well, which D sixty six will be especially especially expected to deliver on pro Europeanism, I expect, and that's going to be a particular headache for them. Um, but that may, might be interesting for future European politics. Okay, I, I think I think we're missing a, a, a an, an important part of the podcast, given that there were so many parties, which is. Um, what is the best party logo of the 37? <laughs> I, was, I've been, I, I knew you were going to ask this and I've been thinking about it. And to be honest, I think the Netherlands excels in having fairly average party logos. Yeah. I don't think there's any that are terrible, really. But there's none that really leap out as me as being like absolutely fantastic pieces of well, design. One of the problems that they have as well is that... Um, is that the, um, because there's so many parties... You have to really make clear which party you are, <laughs> because if it's if it's too, if it um, because if it's um, too generic, if it, if it doesn't explicitly spell out who you are, then it becomes mm. very confusing. So most party logos are just basically a version of their name done stylistically. Yeah. Um, classic: stick your name in a coloured circle or yes. square, which is. Yeah. I mean, I would give a particular a particular shout out to two in particular. First of all, I actually really like Green Left's logo because Green Left do this. The green is red, and the yeah, because so yeah, yeah exactly. So they, they 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 on the logo, the word for green is in red, and the word for left is in green, which is used to symbolise by Green Left that. Uh, for them, being green, being green and left are synonymous, um, mm. which yeah, I mean, it makes a point. Um, yeah. More hideously, I have to say, I I quite like the Party for Freedom logo. Which yeah, I uh, was going to say the same thing, even yeah. though it's horrible. It's got a nice bird on there. It looks it's a horrible, nice. yeah, it's a horrible bird, but it's yeah. got a lovely kind of stylized uh, um, bird, which uh, is very attractive. If, if you ask me, that bird is one of those seagulls that steals food from unsuspecting tourists. Mm. Um, no. <laughs> um, how about the Socialist Party, which seems to have a tomato? Yes. Yeah. Punctua punctuating, punctuating the P of party. That's actually pretty. It's 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 actually kind of. It's interesting. I like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think will also highlight the um, the Henk Kroll list, which won not point not nine percent of the vote but has quite an attractive level that that is that is very um that is very like i uh, like i i should also mention um bitch one's logo uh, yeah bitch one is a party which only got one seat but it's essentially 
a Black Lives Matter logo, and they've got a kind of very nice stylized black and white mm-hmm. um, um, presentation. But yeah, yeah. so there's, there's something there for everyone on all sides of the political <laughs> spectrum. In fact, I think we've basically talked about parties that are, are at, the, at the extremes of everything. Yeah. So that's... Honest, the centrist parties have very centrist quality of their logos. Yes. Like, they're they all very pretty... much D66, CDA. They're all very mm. safe and boring. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Labour has a, I quite actually tell you what one of the best logos logos for a party that is relatively in the centre, relatively and you can prob- and it's very easy to um, see to miss the cleverness of it. Actually, is the um, Pebe Day R the Labour Party logo because if you look, the rose on the um, Labour logo. Ha- actually has a fist in the middle of it mm. um, which is a clever use of negative space so I quite like that yeah. one mm. okay well I think we mm. should leave it there before we get into the rate yeah. the complete uh, system of logo rating yes <laughs> and and indeed just start discussing tiny Dutch parties which have nothing to do <laughs> with anyone particular shout out to the ultra Christian SGP who it's always mandatory to mention, who've been in Parliament for 100 years and who are so Christian that they close their website on Sundays. <laughs> Just their, their logo fun. looks like a kind of Wild West movie font, though. It's a terrible logo, but the party is incredibly interesting. It's basically yeah. the party of a, of a particularly extreme um, Calvinist sect. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't think they'd mind me saying that because uh, <laughs> particularly if we put this podcast out on a Sunday when none of them can listen yeah. to it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we're going to be talking next week about another country with lots of extreme religious tiny parties um, as well. So, yeah, I think we'll, everyone join us next week for a discussion of the Israeli election, which is going to be an absolutely fascinating one as well. Um, mm. Absolutely. All right. We'll see everyone next week. Look forward to it. Bye bye. 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 Have we lost Johnny? Yeah, we did. We did lose Johnny, but I think um, you could. Oh, you could we still seem to be recording. Yeah, uh, yeah we still we, seem we to are. be recording. Mm-hmm. So, so I'll carry on. Um,